Hello and welcome to Two Girls in a Pod. I'm Sharon. I'm Christy. We have a guest on today, Chelsea Riddell, who is a peer recovery support, support specialist. specialist with FASA Together. All right. Y'all, we practice that. Yes. <laughs> welcome. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm so excited to be here. For those who don't know what that whole big title is, what does that mean? Yes. So a peer recovery support specialist, uh, we're individuals that work in mental health or addiction. We kind of fall somewhere in between what would be. So we just kind of fall somewhere in between what would look like a like a 12 step sponsor and maybe more of that clinical therapeutic side. We're just like right there in the middle. So we are not therapists. We're not psychologists. We use our personally lived experience and get certification um, on a national and state level to help those individuals with their addiction and more of like a peer to peer level. Okay, so when you say that it's kind of having you kind of lived the life a little bit. Is that what I'm hearing as yes. far as addiction? Yes. So part of the certification is you are in recovery yourself. So for me, I both experienced addiction and I have experience um, as a loved one side as well. So you go through all of that lived experiences and then you use that to uh, get others to connect so we can get down to the bottom of you know what's going on with them as well. Well, I think always, you know, when we do dual diagnosis, it's always hard, you know, which came first. And I yeah. think that sometimes that makes it difficult because sometimes I think it's not a matter of trying to figure out what comes first. It's just a matter of being present with somebody in order for them to tell their story because you're going to find a kind of muddle through it anyway and figure it out. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So you've been in recovery how long? So it'll be four years in September. Ooh, congratulations. Okay, yeah. Thank you. What, what got you to the place of recovery? So, you know, there was kind of like a long history, really. When I was growing up, I learned at a very young age that there was addiction in my family. We had family members that were in and out of treatment, in and out of the prison system. And we were very close with them. So we knew a lot of what was going on. Whenever I was young, I was kind of going through some things. I heard my parents fighting often. I kind of saw, we knew a little bit too much information. I started coping and, you know, some unhealthy behaviors. I self-harmed at a very young age, quickly developed an eating disorder. By the time I was 21, I was drinking by myself every day. I ended up finding a group of individuals that were also drinking every day. And, you know, we really kind of latched on to each other. I actually found my husband in that group. My husband also struggled with addiction. He'll be four years in September as well. What really happened is I was focusing a lot on what was going on with him. And I was neglecting a lot of areas in my own personal life and my own wellness and so I was putting all of my focus on that, all of my focus on my friends and my family that were struggling. And I was going deeper and deeper and deeper into my own struggles. My husband ended up having um, some health complications and he ended up going to treatment. And it was kind of during that time, I was not in a good place and I got paired up with a drug and alcohol counselor. And once I started talking with my counselor, I started uncovering a lot of things that were going on in my life. And then I got to start working on my own wellness. So it was a little bit of a push from my husband seeking his own wellness. And I just came face to face with everything I've been running away from. Isn't it interesting when you kind of come face to face with it, you realize it's not as scary as you think? 
<laughs> no, yes, seriously. You know, so you kind of create this big bad wolf kind of scenario in your life. And then when you go and you actually face this little puppy in the corner that we just manifest. Yeah. But we do that, I think, often because, you know, we don't learn those coping skills. We don't learn that resiliency, especially when you grow up in certain environments. When you grow up in an environment of addiction, you don't learn resiliency. The drug becomes the thing that helps you to cope on a daily basis and stuff or suppress whatever else is going on. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of funny, though, but, you know, I always tell people, you know, what would do drug and alcohol. What are you afraid of? What do you think that big bad thing is going to do to you? Because it's already happened. Yeah. It's not going to rehappen. You create it and make it rehappen in your head. And I think when you get into recovery, I don't care whether it's from addictions or mental health or whatever it is, that becomes that reality. You know, and then when you can see it that way, then you are much more successful in your recovery, I think, anyway. I mean, but once again, you know, I just did treatment on it. <laughs> No, yeah. no. I think that you're very spot on there. We do have a tendency to make things up very big. We build it up in our head. Starts, you know, makes you start to lose some confidence in yourself. You get insecure about some things. I think stigmatization really drives that fear factor there. But just like you said, once you like come face to face with it, and you almost, you know, you have a, a choice to either tackle this or to stay doing what you're doing. You know, that problem tends to get a little bit smaller and smaller and smaller the more you're able to cope with it in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. Did you find that I often, you know, when you see a lot of this stuff or when I was working in it, it's kind of that thing of, and I'll hear that even still sometimes, well, you know, we have alcoholism in our family, so therefore I'm kind of an alcoholic. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of that thing that somebody has said and then it becomes this truth and you kind of have this snowball effect to it. It's like, Oh, yeah, I'm part of that family. So, oh, yeah, and all my cousins aren't, you know, my family's in prison, so I'm bound for prison or whatever it is. It doesn't have to even be that way. It could be something positive. All my family's doctors, so I got to go be a doctor. It doesn't matter what it is. There's still this idea that you have to stay within that family system and those ideals of the family system. Did you see that it with you as well? Like, this is just what we do? So, yes and no. In my family, uh, a lot of the usage was with more illicit drug use, lots of heroin, meth, things like that. Alcohol didn't really get touched up on very much. So we were driving these factors and these fears into us. And it was, well, don't do heroin. Don't do meth. Keep a steady <laughs> job. You know, go to school. Do all this stuff. And nobody ever touched up on the alcohol factor. And okay. it was always very interesting because I never really thought I had any sort of problem. Now, I was experimenting with all kinds of drugs. I got addicted to some of them. I definitely was very reliant on alcohol. I had some of those other co-occurring disorders that were happening. But in my mind frame, I was thinking, well, I'm not in jail. I'm going to school. I have a steady job. So I'm okay. You know, like this is fine. Right. And, you know, it wasn't until my husband and I actually found our wellness that the rest of the family was thinking, oh, no, we do have a problem with alcohol here as well. Were you thinking it was because if I'm drinking, I'm not doing all these other things, so therefore I'm okay? Because it sounds like you were a functioning addict, as we call it. You were still going and doing everything that you had to. 
Yeah, right. And, and you know, that, that functioning alcoholic, that's always an interesting term to me because that is kind of how I saw myself. You know, we even made jokes about it. Like, we're functioning. It's fine. Like, we're going through day-to-day life. But maybe I was going to work. You know, maybe I was cooking my family dinner. But I was also going to work with a hangover every single day. You know, mm-hmm. I was – my hangover was really settling in at the – in the middle of my workday because I was still intoxicated from the previous night. And as soon as I get off work, what's the first thing I'm thinking of? Oh, I'm going to go home and I'm going to pour myself a drink. I'm going to hang out with my friends, go to sleep and do it all over again. Let me ask you this, though, because I always often see this, too. You know, as you go into your recovery, people who are not in recovery, who are your friends, either are trying to sabotage it or it's Oh, you think you're too good for us now? I mean, there's a lot of that stuff. So how do you work around that, too? Because it does happen, whether it's your family system or your friend, whatever that system is for you. You know, that's a very important conversation that I don't feel like we touch up on a whole lot. It's hard, you know, and especially as an adult, it's hard to make friends as an adult anyway. And then once you throw that in, it always seems to be a topic of conversation. So with my personal friend group, when my husband went to treatment, I was having friends hand me glasses of wine and they were saying, you're not the one in treatment. Like you deserve this. Look at at all this hard stuff you're going through. Just have a drink. It's okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I did feel that sabotaging. My husband got a phone call while we were in there and his best friend was saying, dude, what are you doing? Like you're being dramatic. Just come home. You're okay. We're just going to slow down a little bit. And of course, some friends from that friend group, they've stuck around. Most of them haven't. So we've definitely experienced that sabotaging. Another thing that gets a little tricky is people feel like they don't want to drink around you or they want to tell you, oh, well, I don't drink that much anymore. I don't, I do this now, I do that. And you're just kind of seeing that's only whenever you're around. So it was like people are just trying to kind of change themselves or get you to fit back into that box. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting. I, I mean, I think there's a difference with being courteous. You know, when you're around somebody who has an addiction and being courteous by saying, is it okay if we have a glass of wine when we're with you or whatever? And then waiting for their response. And they're like, sure, then you be who you are. But I think a lot of times people just go, oh, my God, coming over, hide all the alcohol or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know. I feel like that's probably what it is. But I hear that. And, and the reason I say that, I, I joke, but I, my clients would often say that, you know, when their alcoholic brother was coming over, oh, my God, go hide all the alcohol. <laughs> or they get all mad when the brother drinks all the alcohol. You know, it's either way, it's still causing some kind of disruption in the life yeah. of the people. I think that, well, it would be my guess that if you're looking at making that change, we were talking about how big something looks or that. That's probably one of the fears about it is how is my life going to look different? Even though there are things I need to be different because this isn't working the way that it is. What does that mean? It's going to change for me as far as, you know, the friends that I hang out with and all of that kind of stuff. I would imagine that plays a big part of that, deciding to make those changes. It does. I mean, your environment plays a huge factor in just your addiction, your behaviors in general. I'm big on communication, so I always like to have these talks with individuals. You know, I don't mind if somebody drinks around me, but somebody else 
might mind. So like, let's just talk about this stuff instead of everybody having to change everything, you know, just for a couple of hours or something. Right. It is a big topic. Uh, when my husband went to treatment, that's when we really started to look at that. And we were a little afraid. So we're like, well, we're going to be boring now. How are we going to have fun? Nobody <laughs> wants to hang out with us or talk to us. What are we supposed to do? We lived on a golf course. You know, we could walk to the bar every single day. But we did. We made some very big changes. When he was in treatment, I sold the house and we moved to a different area in the city. So we were kind of away from that. We had to reevaluate some of our friendship groups, um, some hobbies, just how we communicate with each other in general. It becomes a pattern. People don't understand is, you know, I always tell people when you're dealing with anything you're trying to change, we just happen to be talking about addiction today. But I would tell people, if I was having to stop smoking cigarettes, go move your ashtray. What? You are in a pattern of behavior. Your body does it. It's on automatic pilot. We do that when we're driving. She'll be driving and I'm there like, uh, we're not going to the office. Oh, okay. <laughs> she gets back in because you get into a rhythm and a pattern and most addictions or most things we do in life, there's a pattern to it, and we do it without thought, mm -hmm. okay? So the only way to change it is to change how you have to think about it. So if I'm used to coming in, sitting down, there's my ashtray, I sit down and I smoke right in that same spot, move the furniture, move the ashtray, and then you come in and they're like, well, where's my ashtray? Yeah. <laughs> and people, but it seems simple, but it's the start. It's not the end, but it is the start. And that's kind of what you're saying is when he went into treatment, that shifted things with your system. It was like, crap, he's in there. What am I supposed to do? Yeah. What propelled you to sell your home and to know to move somewhere else? Yeah, well, so, you know, like I mentioned, we lived on a golf course. And that it can be a very party type of atmosphere. And the particular one we lived on was very, <laughs> was very ingrained in that. And we were noticing that, you know, when I would come home from work, I wasn't just coming home. I was driving to the clubhouse and I was meeting my husband at the clubhouse and all of our friends. So and if we weren't doing that, then we were going to somebody's house in the neighborhood and just doing all the same things over and over. So we knew that that was going to have to be the, one of the very first things that we changed. Our environment was playing a massive factor in our day-to-day -day habits, you know, what we were doing, what we were saying was okay and what wasn't okay. We knew that if we were going to make any effort towards this at all, then we were going to have to get out of that environment and start forming new habits, making new goals. And you know, I, when I would do drug and alcohol treatment, you know, people would sit there and say people failed. I always say it's not the individual who's failing on their own. I said, what happens is you take them, you send them away to treatment, but you put them right back in the same situation mm -hmm. and expect them to make different choices with the people around them making the same choice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a problem. And then you have the flip side where sometimes the people that love you become enablers to your addiction. Mm -hmm. Right. I found that to be true working with the, I used to work in community corrections and a lot of times those people would go out back to their same environment and they would be back in our program. We would see them, you know, however many months later. We're teaching them to think differently outside their environment. But we don't teach them, how do you think in your environment? Yeah. Absolutely. That's such a good point because, you know, you can go somewhere. You can go somewhere for 30, 45, 90 days and... 
that entire time you're in a, a safe place. You know, you have therapists uh, just on hand. You have your groups on hand. You're, you know, eating a little bit differently, just functioning a little bit differently. And that's your safe place. You're learning all of these new coping skills in that safe space. And once you get out back into the real world, back into your environment, a lot of the times those skills kind of go out the window because you're not quite safe like you were before. Nothing else has changed around you. Well, the people you're engaging with aren't using any new skills. And in fact, you know, it's like, oh, what are, how are you talking like that? Or whatever they, you know what I mean? I think sometimes when we look at the success of why we don't have the success with addiction is I also think that we don't work with those families of how do you change what you're doing? If you're a unit, then how do you work to see things differently? Yeah, It's not one person. There's a lot of stuff that contributes to, like you said, having that environment where you're going and that's what everybody's expecting. That becomes that expectation of you. And then when you don't do it, what is that like? Mm, right, right. And, and you know, I think that's where you see a lot of like the stigma and the shame wrapped around addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember when my husband went into treatment and that weekend we had a family day and they talked to you about the neuroscience behind addiction, what to expect, everything like that. And I'll just never forget this, you know, in front of all of these families who they're, you know, their hearts are just outside of their chest at this point. And they said, look around this room. Only 10% of these people are actually going to be well. Only 10% of these people are actually going to make it out of this. And that just drove home with me. And I'm like, we just keep telling everybody that they're so bad. And it's just this one person that's causing all of this badness they're probably going to end up being bad. You know, it's just inevitable. So that's one thing that I really love about our program with Face It Together is we don't only talk to the individual that's struggling with addiction, but we really bring the family in as well. And it's not just roped around your loved one's addiction. It's roped around what have you experienced since this has been going on? You know, what have you neglected about yourself? What parts of your communication do we need to work on? Your understanding things like that. And uh, I I always love seeing whenever we have a family member and a PWA or person with addiction engaged, because you just see both people really progressing on their own. Well, I think one of the things you said is about communication. And one of the things we know is when there's, it doesn't, once again, we're talking about addiction, but it's a lot of different things, is there becomes a breakdown in communication everybody's having conversations in their head, but they're not having conversations with the people around them. And and it's like, oh, I think I can do this. Yeah, I think I can. I don't. Yeah, I'm really not an addict. But then if you sit there and ask those people that truly care, do you think I'm an addict? Oh, yes, you are. (laughs) You know, kind of thing. But we're not asking them because I think there's that part that doesn't want to know the truth either. Yeah. And I think you're right. I don't think that anybody chooses that this is what they want to do. This is what happens whether it's a person struggling with addiction, mental health, or a family member, bystander, I don't think anybody chooses to be in those positions. But if you can communicate that, even just saying, how are you feeling today? Really, mentally, how are you feeling today? What did you do today to bring yourself back up in spirits? What can I do to help that? You know, if we can have those conversations, I just wonder what, you know, what could really happen inside these households? You know, one of the things I remind my clients and everybody about is that all of us are a circumstance away from addiction, mental health, and homelessness. 
Yeah, it does not discriminate. It does not end illness. It really mm-hmm. does not discriminate. It's a circumstance sometimes that happens that becomes that driving force. And sometimes it's because we didn't even learn the skills in the first place. So how can I implement a skill I've never even learned? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it sounds like with the program that you're involved with, it's about teaching skills. What are some of those important skills that you feel are valuable to teach these people that come through this program? Yeah, so two of the big things that I usually really hone in on are communication, just figuring out how to be an active listener. I think that's a big thing. We always say, you know, we were given two ears and one mouth for a reason. We got to listen twice as much as we're speaking. So just learning those active listening skills, those communication skills, and then setting boundaries and maintaining those boundaries. You know, I think that we often try to set boundaries, but we can't stay consistent with them. Or it looks more like I'm setting a boundary against you and not this is a boundary that I have for myself. Mm-hmm. And these are some expectations I have for myself. So we really work a lot on that communication, setting boundaries, and just some other coping skills that you might be able to, you know, that you might be interested in, like whether that be meditation or exercise, being a little bit more social or finding your group, things like that. You know, we really focus on the individual's We'll focus on their big goal and make up small goals to reach that. Whenever we talk about boundaries, boundaries is a huge thing. And I think what's funny about that is that a person will say, well, I'm setting this boundary. And sometimes the boundary can sound punitive because the person has to be setting the boundary for themselves, but they often feel like they're being forced into setting a boundary. Mm -hmm. So then it's, well, just stop coming around me. And if you stop coming around me, then I'm not going to be drinking anymore. How's that? You know what I mean? Not realizing that it's, I need to spend this time with you because I need to take care of me. Because once again, until that person has that thing, that intrinsic thing of knowing, I need to do this for me, whether it's your mental health, it doesn't matter what it is. Shifting that focus to, I need to do this for me. And oftentimes it's even when we look at people who are trying to be healthy, you know, it's like they don't set that boundary of, Friends calling up, hey, let's go for the in-year. They're like, oh, man, I got it work out. You know, I'm not, we know that, don't we? Mm-hmm. Or, or having even like a, f- a food allergy, like gluten. Mm-hmm. We have discovered that that, because that's, I have a gluten sensitivity. So she does too. And a lot of times, you know, you'll you encounter family that they want to make something or whatever. You're coming over or that, and they have no clue about gluten-free and all of that. So you don't want to hurt their feelings because I can't eat, you know, whatever it is that you made. <laughs> but, yeah, so it's kind of you do you, to be able to communicate those things and understand that it's about taking care of yourself, but you don't want to hurt that other person's feelings, too. So That's the other part. We forget to educate people. Yeah whether it's a gluten intolerance or whether it's around addiction of I'm in recovery. And so therefore my world looks different than it did then in the past. Yes. But it's really having those conversations with you. Were those conversations hard with your family or do you feel, because you've talked about your husband, we're going to get back to him in a minute, but your nuclear family, what was that like when you finally said, I'm going to be healthy, I'm going to be better or work on me? Yeah, so I will say that we were very fortunate that our support system truly supported us. I know that that does not happen all the time, Mm -hmm. um, but our families, you know, they 
stopped drinking quite as much. Um, you know, we stopped having alcohol around at the parties, things like that. Inadvertently, more and more people in the family just stopped drinking altogether. So that has been very interesting to see. I'm not certain if it's because we just set these boundaries and we communicated with them and we really gave them the reason why. This is why we're doing this. This is really why we have to do this. We love your support, but I'm not going to make you do anything here. But our family really jumped on board with it. With friends, it was a little bit different. With the friends, they just didn't quite understand as much. I think that maybe people were feeling a little bit guilty, you know, if they continued to do that and we were around. So those relationships, it just kind of organically uh, fell off, Mm -hmm. I guess. Well, and I think the other thing is, too, you know, when you become sober, those people who have been there, what you perceive as your, you know, group, when they're gone, there's a little bit of grief and loss around it, too, because even the people you're around, they're not their addiction. Absolutely. There are so many aspects, and and you will love some aspects of them. And then when you have to make that choice to move on because of your own mental health, physical health, and all those, there's a sadness to it, too, which we don't talk. It's like, well, no, just cut it off and move along. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You're right. There's a sense of grief there. You know, you're losing something that was once a giant part of your life. You know, our friends were everything to us. We did everything together. And it was really hard to wrap my mind around that. Again, fortunately, we had a really good support system outside of that. And my husband and I, we were understanding these feelings that we were going through at the same time. So that was very helpful. But something that he always reminded me was, hey, they didn't change. We changed. Like, we're the ones that changed. So you can't put all these expectations on them. You can't be so mad at them because now we're not having movie nights at the house. We're the ones that changed. That kind of put some things in a perspective for me. And I was like, you know what? You're right. It is a loss. And it was very, very hard. But I'm doing this for a reason, you know, and I'm going to continue to change. I'm, I'm not going to stop there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a different. I think in some aspects, you know, when you have been able to work through those addictions and you can become successful, then those people who have addictions understand it does not have to be the way it is. There is another option. And one option, you know, and I mean, and I always tell people, don't sit there and think you have to go and it's a cookie cutter yeah. kind of thing. Because it's not. Because if you do the cookie cutter, chances are you're not going to be as successful as if you find those things. Some people, it's like they find meditation and it's like, dang, who knew this? And that becomes their thing to go to that's more healthy. And they learn to develop those skills around quieting the mind, doing all the stuff they have to do. That becomes theirs. Somebody has to do AA or NA or, you know, all of these things. But I think when we try to use that cookie cutter for everybody I think that's where we lose some of our success with addiction. I think that you're really spot on there. You know, I've seen things done all different ways, and I would never turn somebody away from something that's working for them. You know, that works for you. It didn't work for me. Just like with the work that I do, whatever worked for me, I can't just use that for every single person that walks through my door. You know, we really got to get down to the individual and what makes this individual a whole person. Yeah, just get down to the bottom of that, what they truly need, not just what works on a large platform or something like that. When did you realize you were more than your addiction? Mm, 
I think I realized that in a therapy session. And oh man, I just bawled and bawled my eyes out. (laughs) I was really struggling. I was struggling with being a happy, bubbly, positive individual. And then knowing that inside I was feeling very dark and lost and just hopeless. So I actually did a little meditation with my therapist right then and there. And he had me look at myself as both of these people. And he was like, this is okay. Like you are allowed to be bubbly and happy and positive, And you're also allowed to just not feel so great sometimes. So that right there, it just kind of sparked something in me. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I am not just what, how everybody perceives me on the outside. And I'm not just how I feel on the inside. And humans are so much more complex than that. We are definitely not one dimensional. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, and I think when we do that internal introspection, sometimes there's that shame or all those other, you already feel like crap, but let's throw some more on that by, oh, look, I'm a fraud. Here I am acting bubbly when I'm really not. Or do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I actually had that conversation with him. And I was like, I'm a fraud. And we talked about me being a fraud for weeks. I couldn't get over it. I couldn't see myself as anything other than that just darkness. Because once again, internally, you were seeing yourself one dimensional. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and then realizing there's so much more to who we are. And I always, even when I worked for my clients, I said, you are not your diagnosis. It is a part of you. It makes up part of you but there's so many other you're not your sexuality you're not your gender you're mm-hmm. it's this montage of things that create this individual and that uniqueness within that individual but we will get stuck and particularly you know, when we have addiction any kind of illness whatever it is whatever gets stuck in our head we become that and you know it's always that thing of well this is who I am I've been working on that I have horrible allergies and she's just taking ownership of those. And I write, you're right. They are not my allergies. I will not take ownership of them. <laughs> you know, but even something as simple as that. And it's weird what it does to the mind when you actually do that. And they're, like, they're not mine. I'll be taking that medicine for somebody else's allergies. <laughs> but it's like unconsciously you adhere to the behavior that, that falls in line with that, I think. And then we do. We re- forget that we're multifaceted. You know, it's not just that one piece of us, but we make it way bigger. <laughs> well, I think, though, we have society plays a little bit of role in that, too, because, you know, it oftentimes, you know, with addicts or whatever, it's like, oh, this is what an addict is. Mm. No, this is your definition of what an addict is. But once again, we don't look at the individuals and the variables that go with that. Does that make sense? Kind of yeah. like in that treatment, 10%. You know, right. we're looking at a statistic and oftentimes, you know, they'll be there like, well, we don't have good success with uh, addicts. Well, of course not, because you're doing you're treating what dimension of it. You're not treating or you treat the whole person, but you're not really treating the whole person because we're putting them back in the same environment. How do I help you function in that dysfunctional environment that you're going into? When I used to work with kids, I would tell them, sometimes, honey, I can't change the dysfunction that you're in, but I can change your perception of the dysfunction. Yeah, right. Then they're they're like, oh, because that gives power to that individual. Mm -hmm, That's huge. And basically in your recovery, that's what happens. You know, I'm just doing it in a different, saying it in a different way, but it's very much that way. Does that make sense? Well, it makes total sense. 
you know, something that I see a lot is people think, okay, I'm an addict. I I have an addiction. So this is all that I am. And a lot of programs are just treating that. We're just treating the addiction. We're not looking at everything that has happened to lead up to that. What I love about Face It Together is we look at addiction as a symptom. You know, Ooh, I like it. I'm never going to call somebody an addict. You're a person with addiction. If I put this label on you, then that's all we're going to think that we are. Right. I don't want you to have to go through life and say, hi, I'm Chelsea and I'm an alcoholic. No, because I'm so much more than that. Right. And we just have to uncover that stuff and remind people that there is more to you than just that. You know, it's a symptom of all this other stuff that has been going on. And I think we do that. I had this conversation with a trans woman I was working with. She was always trans. I said, when do you get to stop transitioning and just be a woman? And she just stopped in session. She goes, what did you say to me? I said, well, what more can you do? When do you get to stop being trans? Because then you're always transitioning, transition, trans, and our brain gets stuck in that. And I asked my other client, when do you get to stop identifying as an addict? When you're 10 years sober, 20 years sober, what is the magical number? I said, you are somebody who maybe is in recovery. Mm-hmm. You are, and, and once again, but we will use, and when I say we, I'm talking society, uses that terminology. But the person who has whatever that is buys into it and gets put in that box, and they use that same verbiage, thinking that that's part of the recovery. But I feel like that's actually negates some of the recovery that you're doing when you continue to say, I'm an addict. Yeah. When was the last time you used? 10 years ago. Okay. Uh, I'm a little confused here. <laughs> right. Yeah. When does that stop? And when do we get to stop using that terminology that makes you stay in the mentality of an addict? Because even if you're not using, you will still have the mentality of an addict. Absolutely. You know, it kind of goes back to the, if you tell me bad, I'm enough, I'm going to be bad. You know, you tell me I'm an addict enough, I'm going to be an addict. If you continue to tell me that I'm transitioning, then when am I ever going to feel whole again? Exactly. And I think that's the whole thing. How do you be whole when you always have the label of being an addict? When you think that first and foremost, I'm that above everything else. I mean, yeah, why would, you know, you be able to identify with every any other part of yourself? That's kind of keeps you stuck, I think. It mm-hmm. does. It does. It, it keeps you stuck from exploring everything else that you are. Right. You know, you're only going to dig into that one aspect of what makes you you. Mm-hmm. And that, that's all it is. It's just one aspect. It's just something that happened. Yeah. When you became uh, clean and sober, what was the thing that you found that you liked that kind of maybe surprised you, <laughs> whether it was oh. a hobby or whatever? Oh, that is such a good question. I might have to think on that for <laughs> In general, I just became a more passionate person. Okay. And I became a more understanding individual. You know, I did not always, you know, for a very long time, I looked at life as black and white. You're this or you're that. You know, we're doing this or we're doing that. It just opened up my mind to how multifaceted we truly are. You know, it opened my mind to understanding individuals better. I... For so long, I just looked at an addict as an addict, whatever that, you know, Webster definition is. And it's just not true. So I really got to dive in deep to individuals in general. And I love that because I would not have done that before. I was probably more of a much more judgmental person 
um, going through those addictions. And I was probably projecting all of the things that I didn't love about <laughs> myself onto anybody else that I came in contact with. And I can confidently say I do not do that anymore. Awesome. Now, because social functions some kind, do you find that you can, because you said you, when you stop doing, oh my God, how am I going to have fun? Am I going to be fun? Am I going to, what did you realize? Yeah, I'm way more fun now. <laughs> <laughs> I get to laugh at my own jokes. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And I remember whenever we were drinking, like somebody told me one time that I like wasn't a funny person. And I was thinking like, what are you talking about? I'm hilarious. But I was just like up in my head all the time. <laughs> so now I just get to be genuine and authentic with people. I'm not worried about the things that are going to come out of my mouth or the thoughts that I'm having. You know, they're very genuine. Did you find any hobbies you liked? Golf, I'm guessing, wasn't one of them. Yeah, we gave up golf. <laughs> We gave up golf. We've considered picking it back up, but we're going four years strong without it. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that some of the hobbies that I picked up were really just right in tune with the self-care that I was trying to accomplish. I became very passionate about mental health. I enjoy volunteering. I love meditation. You know, I could sit there and meditate all day long and just be content. You know, there are these things that they were just stuff that I was focusing in on my self-care that just, you know, turned into hobbies, turned into passions. And I think anytime you can take something that you like and and do something with it, and we always joke about that, it's not a job. I've loved being a therapist. So I never sit there and say, I have a job. I love what I do because I get to be who I am. You know, what you see is what you get. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that we've loved about the podcast, too. And we actually it's cool that we get to do that together because, you know, as a therapist, yeah, she kind of she had that already. She had a job that she was fulfilled in that way, you know, but I feel like that the podcast has brought even so much more. And we're so passionate about that because we get to talk to people like yourself, you know, that are making these changes and and self-care is an important thing in that. And we love to put that out there to people. We love promoting the evolution of somebody. Yes. The thing is, is for people to understand, we evolve. We're always changing. You may not see the change, but nothing in our life stays stagnant. Yeah. Nothing. So I always love that when somebody comes, I said, what's new and different since last week? Nothing. Really? Time stood still for you? How did that happen? (laughs) Tell me about this. And then, you know, they'll be there like, well, no. Okay, then what is new and different? There's something different. What did you think different? What did you do different? But we get so caught up in that big routine, we forget those little things that we're doing. Yeah, I I think that's so true. I I get that a lot in some sessions too. People will say, oh, nothing's different, nothing's changed. And next thing you know, an hour has passed and we talked nonstop. And so I always point those things out to people as well. You know, like we are always changing. You know, there's a difference between living in the chaos and thinking that, in order to talk about something, you have to talk about something that is tragic or catastrophizing things. You know, you think that that's the only thing that we have to talk about are the bad stuff. But whenever you kind of give yourself that permission to really see the progress that's being made, to see the beautiful things that are going on. I think what's interesting is when people understand you can laugh in therapy. <laughs> that's no, the best, isn't I'm it? serious. Because, you know, it's like, didn't you already been having a rough day? We don't have to come in here and make it worse. And so I love that some clients I'll think, you know, and 
oh my God, I love when we just laugh. And we'll laugh at stupid stuff because I just say I don't have a filter sometimes. <laughs> so I just say what I think. <laughs> They'll be like, what did you just say? <laughs> but I think that's so beneficial, though. So you could ask my coworkers. My my room's the laughing room. My laugh just kind of carries. Yeah. And But, you know, I, I always want somebody to laugh in those sessions. We don't want to go in there and, like you said, we're already going through some bad stuff. We don't need to just rehash all the bad stuff and leave here in tears again. Mm-hmm. Well, don't you think, though, it's almost like you feel like all this crap is happening. How can I be happy? Mm. You know, oftentimes in grief and loss, you know, people will be there and they almost feel guilt. Yeah. You know, we've talked about that after your dad died, feeling like, how dare I be happy? Yeah. You know, because you're trying to get back to that place where all's right with the world. And when somebody so important to you is missing, you feel like that you can't go to that place. And then if you do have those moments where that you're just, you know, you feel happier that you almost feel like, it's not okay. You you yeah. kind of feel like you're somehow betraying them or something, I think. I think that is so true. It's even like I think when people have, whether it's grief and loss or addiction, like people have to keep asking you, how are you doing with your recovery? How are you mm-hmm. doing with your recovery? Yeah. It's been four years, people. We can stop asking the question. You know what I mean? Right, yes. It's okay to laugh with me. It's okay to talk about your stupid date you went on that you were drunk it wasn't me drunk it was you drunk you know but people start to censor or we censor ourselves and we we stop laughing and we stop doing those things that are so i think relevant and important to being healthy in in our life it's it's our ability to laugh sometimes at ourselves they're right you know so you do this now what are your goals what are you working on? What do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> yeah, right. We, this is something that I still ask myself to this day. And like you said, we are constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just grow to love so many things. And it's like, okay, how can I put all of this into one thing? I would eventually love to become a therapist. Ooh. That has been a big goal of mine probably since about two years, maybe about a year after um, I became well from alcohol. I was talking to my therapist about it and I was like, you're right. Everybody tells me all of their stuff. Why, why, why don't I just go out and do that? So I've been working on that. I would really love to become a therapist one day. I want to keep working with the community. If I could do something to just get the whole community engaged, break down these stigmatizations, give people other outlets to refine some hobbies, try new things. I'd love to do something where just all wellness was under a roof and everybody had a spot that they could go to and know that it was a good and safe spot. Mm-hmm. Nice. Now, did your organization do community things? Like, do they have any stuff coming up, up and coming, anything like that? Our basis model is we offer one-on-one peer support. So we do just our normal sessions throughout the the weeks. We do have a big, it's called March into the Light. It's an annual march that we do every single year. We'll have it both here in Colorado and in South Dakota. And it's really beautiful. It just gives everybody an opportunity that is either currently struggling, maybe they're in their recovery, they're in a maintenance stage, they're thinking about it, a chance to honor loved ones that were lost. And at sunset, so this will be on Saturday, September 23rd, um, at sunset, uh, sorry, at sunrise, everybody will congregate together and we will march. And you do like a mile long 
walk to just honor everybody that has been hurt, lost, or struggled throughout that time. And um, we'll have lots and lots of vendors out there, different community organizations. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I'll send you an invite to it. <laughs> I, I think I got the date wrong. I think it's actually on the 22nd. Last year was on the 23rd. Okay. Well, it's such a neat thing. It's to bring awareness. And, you know, I tell people one has to be aware before one can make a change. Yeah, absolutely. Bringing that awareness, helping people to understand, because we live in a time now where we are somebody we know is either struggling with an addiction or a mental health issue. Sometimes they go hand in hand. Sometimes they don't. But we often see that dual diagnosis and we are losing a lot of people to addiction. Yeah. Whether it's that lack of helping people learn coping skills and, you know, I mean, how do we teach people to do that in their homes or whatever, you know, wherever it starts, the school systems, you know, it's it's a systemic problem that we have. But bringing the awareness is what we have to do first. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that's what we're doing today when our listeners hear. It's about bringing an awareness. It's not about having a negative thing about addiction or anything else, which sometimes there's a lot of negativity around it. But it's like everything else, you know, you still have to work through things. To punish the person who's trying to work through them doesn't make the addiction go away. Sometimes it just exacerbates it. Mm -hmm. Well, 100%. 100%. Well, that's why I'm so thankful that we have individuals that really seek out to bring awareness like the two of you. I love how big podcasts have taken off because it truly gives everybody that opportunity to learn and to educate themselves. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, we just didn't have quite this much information. Mm -hmm. Social media is, you know, it can be such a positive thing. It can. You know, wherever you focus, what you focus on becomes what it is. I mean, if you can go focus on all the negative in social media as well, that's a choice. Absolutely, yeah. You know, but it can be a really good platform. We're finding that out, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> as we navigate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's kind of like that with anything in life. Exactly. You know, you know, if we're seeking out the negatives, if we're just focusing on the negatives, that's what our environment's going to look like. Exactly. But if we can hone in on that positive stuff, and absolutely, opportunities endless. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up, give another plug for your company again. Yes. So we're Face It Together. We do one-on-one peer coaching for individuals that struggle with addiction and their family members as well. The PWA does not have to be involved in a program for the loved one to get help themselves. And how do they find you? So you can go to our website. It's at wefaceittogether.org. And on that website, there's a little button in the top right-hand corner. It says, get started. You can fill out a web inquiry and our first impressions team will get back to you within 24 hours. Or we have a number on there that you can call as well. Leave us a message or hopefully get through to somebody and you can go ahead and get started. And how long does the process usually take once somebody fills out their inquiry? Just real quickly. Yeah. So people are always shocked about how quickly they can get in because there is a very long wait in mental health all across the country right now. So Monday through Friday are regular business hours. If you fill out an inquiry through Monday through Friday, you'll get a response within 24 hours. We have a list of assessments that you will take um, and we use those just to kind of gauge where individuals are and to get them paired up with a coach that most closely resembles their lived experiences. But once we get those assessments back, again, within 24 hours, we can get them signed up with a coach. Oh, outstanding. That's a nice turnaround there. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we have a very diverse staff. So we try to make certain that 
you know, everybody has a home in their coach. Oh, absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us and for, you know, helping spread the word that there is hope, you know, whether if you have an addiction, there's always hope you can become whatever you want to become. You know, it's a journey and uh, you just kind of have to keep moving along with it. Absolutely. Just keep going. Yes. Yeah. So thank you so much to our listeners. We appreciate you as always. Go out, be kind to others, pay it forward. And we will be back next week. Bye. Bye.